right, well, good morning again. I pray you've had a blessed week, and would just remind you that though next Sunday is Christmas, it's the Lord's Day, we'll be open, and I pray that you will attend if you are able to attend. It's the Lord's Day. Hold on, let me get my uh, tablet here straightened out. Well, we've been uh, doing a series on Christian disciplines. We've talked about prayer, talking about worship, and we're going to talk about worship again today. So I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews, chapter 12. Remember from last week, we saw that worship is both private and corporate. Private and corporate. I'm the worship God privately, in my prayer closet, in my meditations on God's Word, uh, and I'm also as we are here, corporately, together, as a body. And the standards for private and corporate are absolutely the same. They're they're unchanging in it. Um, God is to be worshipped according to how He says He is to be worshipped. He has given us an instruction book. Matter of fact, the title last week was Worship by the Book. And we've talked about the regulative principle and those theological things that if you keep the term or not, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is God said, this is how I am to be worshipped. End of story. We can't put anything else onto it that we think would be nice or add to God, right? One of the greatest sins we commit is coming to God in a self-stylized manner. The way that I want to come. And, you know, if we come to church and say, well, what's in it for me? You've already come in with the wrong question. You've already, you've already cut yourself off at the knees, so to speak. Because it's not what's in it for me. What am I going to give to God? What am I going to give to God? Is God going to be glorified in what I do? And if God, in His graciousness, always in the glorification of Himself, in our glorification of Him, He edifies us. So we're going to talk today about acceptable worship. Acceptable worship. I'd ask you to stand with me as we pray, and then we would read from God's most holy, life-giving Word. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we do ask, O Lord, that You would speak to us that you would take truths and plant them in us, that we would have wisdom and instruction and understanding into what you require about the worship of yourself. Open our eyes, draw us ever closer. Be glorified so that we would be edified. We ask it for the glory of God and in Christ's name. Amen. This is what God says today. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not, they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, 
the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore... Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We'll see here that the writer of Hebrews will learn about two mountains, a warning, a promise, and an admonition. He begins by comparing two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, or a physical mountain and a spiritual mountain, the law or grace, death or life. That's the comparison that the writer of Hebrews makes. Let's begin with Mount Sinai. He says in verse 18, For you have not come to that which may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of the trumpet and the voice whose, made, whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they cannot endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now he's clearly speaking about Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. If you were with us in Sunday nights, or at least tuning in, I pray that you would be here physically. I believe, uh, Mr. John, oh, John, you did this, right? Did you do the mountain? John did the mountain. And um, the scene was absolutely terrifying. We weren't there. But the Bible makes it clear that the people were terrified. Moses was terrified because God says, I'm going to meet you on a mountain. And as God ascended on the mountain, Fire, smoke, trumpets, angels. It was, they was terrifying. And God said, there's limits on this mountain. Do not come close to the mountain. Listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 19. We'll let God describe it because he does a much better job anyways. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. A terrifying scene. Many of us have seen, well, probably all of us have seen the pictures of the towers and the smoke coming out of them on 9-11. Terrifying. Horrible. I'll never forget where I was. I'll never forget what I was doing on that day. It's ingrained in our memory as Americans. What these people saw, God himself came down on a mountain. Smoke goes before the Lord. Fire goes before the Lord. 
They were absolutely terrified. Listen to what it says, Exodus 20, 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. God even set limits around the mountain. He says, put a boundary up. Make sure that nobody goes past this. If anybody gets uh, uh, brave enough or stupid enough, really, to say they want to run up and meet God, they actually had a provision in there that they were to shoot them with an arrow. Let them be killed before they get to the mountain. It was terrifying. There was limits. The holiness of God was descending in the midst of the people. And that's really what this represents, that there is a separation between God and mankind. God is holy, and we are not. There's a definite separation. Darkness, you can't see God. We're not to approach God. We are, who are we to run into the presence of God and, you know, and be buddy-buddy with Him, so to speak? That is not our place. God is holy. God is to be treated with reverence. Matter of fact, if you remember in self-stylized worship, Nadab and Abihu, they casually went into the presence of God. Right? They went into the, ta- well, they went into the tabernacle, and they went to the altar of incense, and they made their own incense. They decided to worship God in a way God said not to. God was very clear on the command to Nadab and Abihu. This is how you make my incense. Here's the formula. Don't you make it at home for yourself. And don't you come with any other incense in the way that I told you. And what did they do? They made their own and they went in there. And God, it says, fire came out and consumed them. They went the way they wanted to go to God. And this is what the Bible says. Leviticus chapter 10. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord said among those who are near me. To those who are near me, I will be sanctified or I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. God gave very clear commands. At the coming of the law at Sinai, God was showing physically that there is a separation between man and God. God is holy. God is no one to be... I I will use the line from The Prince's Bride, one of the greatest movies ever. Who are you? I am no one to be trifled with. Right? It's the best line in the whole movie. Um, That and Mawage. Unless I digress. But I see that's horrible. He's no one to be trifled with. He's no one to be casual with. See, I am holy, and I will be kept as holy. And if God's priest came in and said, you know what, I don't think you're so holy. I'm going to come in any way I want. They learned a lesson really fast, and the rest of the people learned a lesson. God is holy. We are told that we are to strive for holiness. The writer of Hebrews, earlier in the chapter, says this in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's a separation of holiness between us and God. 
And it's a fearful thing. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the Bible tells us that what happened at Mount Sinai in the giving of the law of God appearing to the people and telling them His commands, that it was meant for nothing more than to teach us that we cannot keep the law. It was to teach us that we need something else. As Paul writes to the Galatians in the King James Version, it says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified. God came down in an incredible scene, a physical scene, of fire, of smoke, of trumpets, of angels, And the people were terrified. And God made it clear, you do not approach me in any way you want. There is a definite separation between me and you. The writer of Hebrews says, this is not the mountain that you've come to. This is not how God has made himself known to you. Right? I know that he uses the language, this, you know, you have not come, as if it's something you did in terms of salvation. Well, there's true. I came to Christ. I made a profession. I've done something. But how did I do that? Because Christ allowed me to. Right? As Paul says to the Galatians, now that you have come to know Christ, or rather, to be known by Christ. This is how they have come. This is not how they have come to know Christ. By rules and regulations and a total separateness. Does that mean that that reverence and that awe has been taken away? No, he's still the God of Sinai. But he says, but you have come to Mount Sion. Listen to what he says. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Even the language here is less terrifying than Mount Mount Sinai. But he's making a point in the language also. You have come is in the perfect tense. He's telling them that you have come, that you are in a state right now, and it will continue into the future. It is a non-ending state. We have already come to Mount Zion. He's beginning to show us the already and the not yet. Listen to what he says. He says, you've come to the city of the living God. When you came to faith in Christ, did you come into a city gate? Did you come into a city door? No, clearly this is spiritual. This is not a physical city, at least not yet. He says, the city of the living God. What did Jesus say when when the Pharisees came and tried to trap him in his own words and ask him about the the resurrection? He said, you know, this guy was married and he died and then his brother and he had seven brothers and then all these brothers had to marry a wife according to the law. So whose wife is she in heaven? And Jesus says, "You you guys got it all wrong. You don't understand anything. And Jesus says in Luke 
20, verse 38, He is the God of the living and not of the dead. Our God is alive. He is the living God. What did, what did, what did, the, what did the angels say at the resurrection of Jesus? Why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? Like, this doesn't make sense. Why are you here looking for... He's living. He's not here. Our God is alive forevermore. He is the living God because He's the only true God. He says, you've come to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Where is the place of your true citizenship? I'm a citizen of America. If you're here, maybe some of you are still citizens of other countries. Maybe you have dual citizenship. But where's your real country? If you're in Christ, you're a citizen of heaven, the Bible tells us. We read that in Philippians 3.20. Where are we actually seated? Where where is our actual position? We're not there yet, but we're there, but we're not already there. It's in heaven. We're seated in the heavenly realms. And it's for this heavenly Jerusalem of which we wait to come down. He says that we've come to the angels in festal gathering. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 33.2 that angels were at Mount Sinai. A myriad of angels were at Mount Sinai. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that God did not hand the law to Moses. Angels did. They serve as a mediator, right? You can see that in in, uh, Acts 7.53 and Galatians 3.19. There, at the giving of the law, the angels were, in essence, messengers of death. Here, at Mount Zion, angels are in festal gathering. What did the angels say when they came and they appeared to the shepherds? When they announced that God's kingdom is here. That God has condescended from the heavenly Jerusalem down to this place called earth. Did they say, well, you guys are in trouble? No. They announced good news of great joy at the birth of Jesus Christ. See, we have come to the mountain of joy. What a contrast. Good news of great joy, which will be for all people. He says, then you've come to the firstborn enrolled in heaven. What does that mean? The firstborn enrolled in heaven? Well, first we need to remember that Jesus is the firstborn of many brothers, and Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. Jesus is the only person in human history to rise from the dead under his own power. What did Jesus say? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I take it up of my own accord. Nothing special except for my resurrection. It is absolutely special. It's the greatest miracle ever. Jesus is the firstborn. But when he says, the first, well, and I like what R. Kent Hughes says in his commentary, Jesus is the firstborn par excellence. But we are the firstborn 
if we're in Christ Jesus. You know, to be the firstborn in the Old Testament under the law, you had to be redeemed. The firstborn male had to be redeemed. God told the children of Israel, the firstborn of the womb of beast or man is mine. Firstborn male is mine, and you need to redeem it. The firstborn male born was to be redeemed by a lamb. Jesus has redeemed you and I. The Lamb of God has brought us. Everybody in heaven is a firstborn. What an incredible thought. And as the firstborn, we have all the rights of inheritance. So therefore, that what is God's becomes ours. What is God's becomes ours. What an incredible thought that is. Because this, this is how you've come to know Christ. You've come to the firstborn, enrolled in heaven. Their name written in heaven. We're, we're actually even better than firstborn. We're adopted. In the Roman society, a firstborn could be taken away. If you were adopted in Roman society, you had all the rights of the firstborn, and it could never be taken away. And therefore, our name is written in heaven. Because this is who you've come to. No wonder that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. And I pray so often for my wife and my kids, and I pray for you and for myself, that the eyes of my heart would be enlightened, that I would know the glorious inheritance of the saints that are ours in Christ Jesus. Do you ever contemplate heaven? Do you ever think about heaven? There's a really good book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. I'd encourage you to read it. Heaven, the place where God lives. You know what's not in heaven for God's children? Smoke and fire and distance. God is telling us, I've drawn near to you. I've come near. We've come to the firstborn enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge. The fact is, we will all stand before God one day. Every single one of us will give an account for his life. No one is going to escape this. And that's really what the Christmas message is about. Because God wants people to escape that judgment. That when our time comes, that Jesus wants to be the one who advocates for us, who stands in our place of judgment. Remember, we talked about the bread and the cup and all that it represents. That Jesus stands in our place. We're going to be judged by God one day. And we're either going to be judged on our own works. What did I do? Were you a good enough person? No, that's what Sinai. You do this, you do this, you do this, and you do this. And God gave 10 rules And the Jews made 630-something out of them, right? Talk about complicating things, right? We can't even get past commandment number one, right? We're doomed right there. It shows us that we're doomed. I can't do this, so I'm never going to be good enough. You and I will never be good enough. So we need someone to stand in our place. God will judge us one day. Are you ready to stand before God, 
all on your own. If you feel that you are, I can assure you by the authority of Scripture that for you, it will be Mount Sinai. He says, not only come to God the judge, but the righteous made perfect. When we come to faith in Christ, we come also to those who've gone before us in Christ. Or as R. Kent Hughes says, the church triumphant. What, what the writer of Hebrews had already said, that, that, that what are we surrounded by? A great cloud of witnesses. There are those who are already in heaven. They've been made. There's people who have gone before us. He says, but most importantly, we've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Remember what Jesus said on the night he was betrayed? This cup is the new covenant. Sinai is done. Sinai is over with. And when Jesus said, it is finished, and that temple veil tore in two, he made it clear that Sinai is done. We can choose to live in Sinai if we want to. It would be very unwise. It would be the stupidest thing you could ever do. Or we can come to Mount Zion, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Why the sprinkled blood? Remember what we were to do when Jesus It is Jesus who took the children of Israel out of Egypt. What were they to do? They were to sprinkle the blood on the doorposts. And the doorposts, if they were sprinkled with blood, protected them from what? The angel of death. Sinai brings death. Mount Zion brings life if you're covered by the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. On the day of atonement, the priest was to go into, in front of the mercy seat of God. The most fearful day of that man's life was to walk behind that curtain. And he was to have in his hand a bowl of blood. And he would dip his finger in that, that, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat seven times. He would sprinkle that blood. And then he would hightail it out of there. Why? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Are your sins forgiven in the blood of Christ today? There is a world out there lost in debauchery, lost in in every evil thing that could be who need to be cleansed in the blood of Christ. And you and I have the answer. Are we bold enough to share the truth with them? That there is a God who will judge them one day and to flee the judgment to come and to perform works in keeping with repentance? The sprinkled blood. It's the sprinkled blood of Jesus 
which causes us to have peace with God. Again, what did the angel say to the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth with whom his favor rests. The wrath of God is abated in the blood of Christ. And Christ's blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You ever wondered what that means? So did I. And I'm going to let Richard Phillips explain it to us. He says this in his Reform Commentary. He says, What a contrast there is between Abel's blood and Christ's blood. Both were killed by their brothers, Abel by Cain and Jesus by his fellow Jews, and no less by the sins of those firstborn brothers who will share eternity with him. Jesus was killed by us, his brothers. But what a different message Jesus' blood proclaims. Abel's blood brought storms upon the earth, while Jesus' blood cries, Peace be still. Just as these words calmed the winds and the waves when Jesus spoke them from the boat, so too does the voice of blood drive away the mountain storms, the fire and tempest of Mount Sinai, to make Mount Zion a place of peace and calm and joy forevermore. How awesome is that? It says, you didn't come here to the place of death. You've come here to the place of life. And so he gives a warning. Here's our options. Again, you read, it's God says to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land, I set before you two choices. Life or death. Hey, thanks. <laughs> right? Which would you choose? Any wise person would choose life. If God himself told you, I'm giving you two choices in this world, life or death, God has given us two choices in this world, life or death. And we'll all die. And we'll all stand before God. And we'll either have eternal life or eternal death. He gives him a warning. Look what it says in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He says earlier, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Is God speaking to you today? Are you going to suppress willfully what God is doing? Please don't. You'll do it to the damnation of your own soul. Do not do that. Do not reject the one who is calling you. Do not refuse him who is speaking to you today. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, contrasts Mount Sinai, the the law and grace. He says this in 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, (laughs) wow, right? I mean, talk about straightforward language. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, the Ten Commandments, clearly, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. 
Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Man, the law is glorious and it sounds good and right. I'm going to do these, these rules and I'm going to obey them and it's good and I'm going to make God happy. What did Paul say to the church in Colossae? He goes, listen, don't, don't go to these laws and rules about asceticism and severity of the body because they sound really good, but they do nothing in taming the flesh. Nothing. That sounds good, and that seems right. How much more the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. How glorious is that? He says, so don't refuse him who is speaking from heaven. Because there's a promise attached with this. Listen to what it says. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Where again is our citizenship? It's in the eternal, unshakable kingdom of God. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said to you many times, and I will say again, every kingdom of earth is going to fall. History is littered with kingdoms. Whether it's the dynasties of China, whether it, 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 it's Alexander the Great, whether it's the Romans, whether it's, it's the barbarians, or whoever throughout history, the Mongols, you name it, America is right there in line also. Do I love America? Absolutely I do. Greatest country on the face of the earth, without a doubt. But America's not going to stand. It's a kingdom that's going to fall. Only the kingdom of God is unshakable. Where is our allegiance? Am I a better American than I am a better Christian? It's a great question to ask ourselves. Am I a better American than I am a Christian? Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 3. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, everything you see around us is going to dissolve. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will be melt as they are burned, as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the new heaven. I'm already in heaven. I'm already, a dwell, I'm already a citizen of the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, but I'm not yet. And therefore, I'm waiting for, and I'm hastening, and I want. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we all went to sleep tonight and woke up in heaven? It'd be fantastic, right? Then you don't have to worry about pastor getting on you about coming Sunday, next Sunday morning. Because we'll be in church anyways. And we won't even be celebrating Christmas up there anyways. Not the way we do here, I don't think. But with that warning and promise of a certain judgment, 
in a becoming kingdom, there's an admonishment. Not an admonishment like you better, but, but really from the idea of advice from an authority. From an authoritative perspective, here's what you should do. Here's the best advice. Here's the wise thing to do. And this comes from God himself. This is God telling us, this is what you should do. Because you have not come to Mount Sinai, because you didn't come to the ministry of death, but you came to the ministry of life in Mount Zion, make sure you don't refuse, right? Make sure you don't refuse because my kingdom's going to stand. Yours won't. Mine will. So make sure you make the right response. And if you've made the right response, and I pray that you have, this is what I want you to do. Listen to what he says in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. What's interesting about the word, let us be grateful. It's all one, it's really two words, but it's one phrase. He, you know, Greek is just crazy that way. It literally means to have or hold grace. Make sure you keep grace. Make sure you possess grace. Let me not let the, this what God has done for me, leave my mind or my heart. I can hold on to this. I can meditate upon this. I can think about this. That's my responsibility. That's your responsibility, to think God's thoughts after himself, as someone has once said. Let us be grateful. How do we respond to God? Think about these things. And let's give thanks to God. Listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 136, 1 to 3. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His steadfast love endures forever. And if you go read Psalm 136... Guess what it keeps saying? Give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. How should we react to what God has done for us? Give thanks. Because His steadfast love endures forever. An unshakable kingdom comes with unshakable love. An unshakable kingdom comes with unshakable love. Psalm 45, 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And again, it's Christmas. The angel comes to Mary. And he says this, In Luke 1. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. An unshakable kingdom 
Jesus Christ is king of the unshakable kingdom. Therefore, offer him acceptable. Literally, the word means pleasing. The word means pleasing. It's the same word found in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What's the, what's the basis of our worship from last week? God is merciful. To present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, logical worship. Do not be conformed to, the wor- to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, pleasing to God, and perfect. So what is acceptable worship? What is acceptable worship? What does God say is acceptable worship? First, it's worship that is done in spirit and in truth. Done with my whole being and done according to God's word. Jesus told the woman at the well that God is seeking a particular kind of worshiper. And he says in John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In truth. Personal sanctification is acceptable worship to God. Personal sanctification is acceptable worship to God. First Thessalonians, and it's not just in Thessalonians, just read Colossians, read Ephesians, read Philippians, read them all, they tell you it's the same thing. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus... That as you receive, just as that as you received from us, how you ought to walk and to what? Please God, acceptable, please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know the instructions that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. But what's that look like? I think that, you know, sexual immorality is a whole host of things. It's just not a physical act. It's what I watch, what I think, what I say. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles do who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger before God the judge. In all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but, to, but in holiness. What was the separation at Mount Sinai? The holiness of God. Now in Mount Zion, we are brought near by the holiness of God. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And then the writer, of course, there's a whole bunch of other ways of acceptable worship. The two main ones are spirit and in truth and living a holy life. And then the writer ends with this. For our God is a consuming fire. It all comes down to our view of God. How do I really view God? How do I really look at God? Peter says, therefore, set set apart the Lord Jesus Christ as holy in your hearts. Do I do that? Oh, I struggle with that. 
If we're going to be honest with ourselves, oftentimes we're practical atheists. Because I go out and live different than what I say. It's not to beat each other up. It's just how God wants us to get our thinking in the right place. If God is truly holy, then we will treat Him as such. We will treat Him as holy in our conduct and our worship. We will be grateful and give God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We should at our times of worship. It's three songs. We could probably make it 50 songs. Should. How many of us would be like, oh, wait, I got, I got you know, I, uh, God's only got one hour today, uh, and then I got to go. Some of you might even be right now going, you know, it's getting late. It's, uh, I don't know if you are or not. If you are and you're convicted by that, that's between you and God. You understand what I'm saying? If God delivered you from death, is he not worth worshiping with everything in us? Turn your Bibles to Psalm 103. We'll end with this. says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. This is acceptable worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He has made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Let me read verse 10 to 12 again. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to the children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of the word, of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, who ministers, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He is worthy of our worship.
God has revealed to us Mount Zion and not Mount Sinai. Let's offer to him acceptable worship. Father, thank you that you have brought us to a place of festal gathering, of the cry of good news for all people. For born to us this day in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And through Christ the Lord, the declaration of peace, the declaration of come, has been given to us. Father, forgive us for worship that is not fitting you. And Father, help us through the power of your Spirit to become all the more people of your word, people of grace, and people who worship you with reverence and awe. Amen and amen. Let's stand, let's close in a song. Let us sing the praises of our God in doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.